Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries of existence, as well as everything weird in the world. If you're looking for fringe knowledge, then you've come to the right place. Today on the show, we're going to go into part three of our chronicles concerning the notorious Aleister Crowley. People usually love him or hate him with little in the middle. But the man absolutely intrigues the masses on all spectrums because he was larger than life, and gave the middle finger to all mainstream society. Now, if you have not heard the other episodes on good old AC, then I'd suggest go checking them out first. But there's no reason why you can't hop right in. And a quick disclaimer, the old bard's life is immersed in the occult, and the way I relay the information is from their perspective for the most part. I will throw in a couple of my personal opinions here and there, but don't think I'm trying to push anything or like uh, say anything is fact or fiction. I'm just presenting it as it is and make up your own mind. So if you're creeped out by occult stuff, then you should probably not listen to this episode. But as open-minded free thinkers, you and I, dear listener, are gonna have a blast. Crowley left a huge legacy behind and impacted the world greatly. No one who really knew him ever doubted his genius because he had an intelligence that was far above average. And the man never let something as limiting as approval from others get in the way of his goals. He would purposely seek out ways to shake the boat and was a profound changer of ways concerning esoteric communities, but also the mainstream society in general. In saying that though, Aleister Crowley stuff can get pretty dark, and he'd be the first to admit that he wasn't quote-unquote a good guy, but he's far from the monster many try to portray him as. So uh, let's get into it and explore the life of the so-called wickedest man in the world, and the reasons why his fellow Brits disdained him. I'm your host Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. at a pretty difficult point in his life. Losing friends, his reputation, and his climbing career in the horrible climbing incident, the great passion in his life was seemingly lost forever, and all his accomplishments around climbing pretty much unacknowledged. He made a lot of enemies on that climb, and there's kind of like a climber's code of conduct, and uh, since he, a master climber, didn't help people when the avalanche happened and people died, and then the rumor was going around that he just stayed in his tent not doing anything, this basically guaranteed that he'd never climb again professionally. But even this wasn't the only one of a couple of unfortunate circumstances plaguing him. His writing, his uh, poetry, it wasn't selling either. For basically his entire career, Crowley largely completely wrote and published all on his own, avoiding professional editors and anyone to critique his work, telling him where it was good, where he needed improvement and stuff like that. He didn't really get any of that. However, this wasn't entirely out of ego, but also practicality. Still, his raw talent was impressive. But his lack of outside sources critiquing his work and teaching him what works and what doesn't in the professional field somewhat held him back from reaching his potential. Though, despite this, his work was fantastic. It just didn't really resonate with the taste at the time and the styles people were used to in the mainstream public. He basically just did his own thing and didn't care about what anybody else may think which is kind of a good thing, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, if you're creating content, 
you need to know what your crowd is and you need to know what's working and not working in the times or success is going to be pretty mild at best. Broly, his wife Rose, and his baby daughter Lilith would go on to have interesting adventures for a little while, like uh, traveling in China. And while Crowley did still have a life of abundance thanks to his vast inherited wealth, the tragedy of recent events haunted him. And just like in the end of the last Crowley episode, despite his brooding, his occult spiritual life would no longer yield to anything mundane, no matter the cost. And while he did find purpose in his spiritual work, there was still something tugging at him. Something still lingering, causing him a pretty serious existential crisis. Though not to the extreme, he was in control and still very productive, but it wasn't until the three Crowleys journeyed to China that, really, he got knocked back into shape. Because when he was traveling across the Chinese border with his group, Crowley was thrown from his pony over a 40-foot cliff. And this was witnessed by many people, pretty much blowing everybody's mind because when they looked down the 40-foot ravine, Crowley just got up completely unharmed. Not a single sprain or broken bone or even any broken skin for that matter, which is, come on, that's pretty much impossible. Though it does kind of remind me of the, the people, the stories of people who have fallen from planes and somehow survived. So I guess it's not impossible, but I guess never tell Crowley the odds. The unexplainable event cured Crowley of his existential crisis, and he concluded that somehow he was being preserved for a greater purpose, especially as he considered all the past times in his life he'd almost been killed as well, which was many. In any case, though, he proclaimed that he'd reached the rank of exempt adept, the highest rank of the second order in the old Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So, at 30 years of age, Aleister Crowley was once again on track, quote-unquote. For lack of a better phrase, I can't think of. And his mind would wander back to his failure to contact his holy guardian angel that I talked about in episode one reminiscing on how he abandoned the ritual to go handle the Golden Dawn Adepts who were standing in his way within the Order. Though I don't think he really thought about all the dangers that were also warned about breaking the ritual, and that he might have invited something dark into his life by doing so. Aleister Crowley was always pretty adept at not seeing things that he didn't want to see, but Pitarabo would go back to studying the Goetia anyway and daily reciting its preliminary invocation in preparation for future works to once again try and contact the entity known as the Holy Guardian Angel. Now, just as like a recap and a reminder or an elaboration to people who may have not heard the past episodes on Crowley, the Holy Guardian Angel is just a fancy term for not necessarily a Christian angel, but more so, to put it in terms that you're more likely to understand, it's our higher self. The aspect of our incarnation that is eternal and exists outside the reincarnation cycle to these traditions. These entities have a direct connection to Source and are pretty much unable to be contacted by ordinary people. In the Goetia, the Goetia is a book that's the Goetia is what's known as a grimoire, a book that contains how to contact certain spirits, and the Goetia itself is a, a grimoire about 72 demons of King Solomon. Solomonic magic, I guess, is what it's also called, and supposedly actually comes from King Solomon from Hebrew lore. And it's not something that you want to mess around with, so don't go messing around with it. But depending on your personal perspective concerning these things, listener, I assume that many interesting thoughts are popping into your head. And I don't blame you, there's some stuff that's better left not known. Anyway, Crowley being on the road traveling with a bunch of people obviously couldn't be doing ritual magic all the time, 
so he conducted a lot of it on the astral plane while riding along the wild roads of China on his pony. The Goetia said to do it every single day, no matter what, rain or shine, uh, tired or energetic, anything. Nothing could ever get in the way of doing it every single day, or there would be consequences. Though this was taking place in 1906, and the Boxer Rebellion was going strong in China, so that war kind of happens to ruin plans sometimes. The Crowleys couldn't stay in China indefinitely for extended periods of time for the obvious dangers that it presented. But it was during his travels in China that Crowley experimented with opium for the second time. Remember back in the first episode when I was talking about him being trained by Bennett? That one adept guy from the Golden Dawn who experimented with drugs and stuff? Well, Crowley noticed that a lot of the people who were with his group carrying luggage and doing work and whatnot, in their off time, they just smoke opium. So he bought an opium pipe and bought some opium and had at it. And yet again, he was unimpressed with the drug. I've smoked opium before one time with my friend Hagen back when I was in my early 20s, and that shit kind of wrecked me. So I don't, I don't know how he could just brush it off, because that I like forgot an entire day and a half doing that. I can't even remember. But though he was unimpressed with the drug, he did manage to get some work done writing The King Ghost and The Opium Smoker while high as fuck. And these are pieces of his work that are interesting reads, to say the least. You should definitely check those out. But with all the rebellion and civil war going on, it was about time to leave China for the Crowleys. Crowley did, however, want to stop by America on the way home and had a hidden agenda to contact one of his old friends from the Golden Dawn who was staying in Shanghai. But his cover story was he wanted to visit America on the way back for business reasons. Saying as much, he sent Rose and Lilith back to Britain alone, which kind of pissed Rose off since she was three months pregnant at the time, and she had her baby daughter with her. But, and yeah, Crowley was kind of a dick for leaving them, but she went anyway, and yeah. I don't know, I would never leave my pregnant wife or child on like a dangerous journey across the ocean back to an entire different country across the world, but that's just me. However, Crowley just let them go and made his way to Shanghai to meet up with one of his old friends, Soror Fidelis. Oh, and also as a recap, people in these hermetic mystery schools take on new names when joining, and guys' names always start with Freighter, and girls' names always start with Sora. Alistair's is Perturabo, so I guess formally he'd be known as Freighter Perturabo, but uh... Her real name is Elaine Simpson, and when he arrived in Shanghai to see her, he hung out with her for a bit, her and her friends, and even did some tarot stuff for them to entertain him, but he eventually got her alone to get to the point of his visit, which was the Book of the Law. They talked for a bit about this strange entity calling itself Iwas and how it dictated it all to him back in Egypt, and what she thought about it. So he gave her a copy and she read the texts and Alistair actually hoped that she'd denounce it. I mean, according to occultists, there's more spirits that can't be trusted than can. And he was hoping that it was just some powerful astral entity messing with him. Curly didn't want to be the person that Iwas wanted him to be. Hence why he ignored all the entity's instructions after it was done dictating it to him. He didn't do any of the stuff that it said to do. And it's also why he didn't touch it and just kind of put it away for so long. Yet, much to his surprise, Soror Fidelis told him that it was genuine and prophetic, and everything she'd learned concerning the esoteric pointed towards it being a very real gift from an interdimensional being. He was pretty surprised at her reaction, too, and he asked her to communicate with Iwas on the astral plane which she agreed. Perturabo would summon it and invoke its presence and she'd be able to judge the entity's authenticity. They did so and when Iowas appeared to her, it appeared as a blue, like kind of just like a blue light in a, in a humanoid form, which held a wand. 
And interestingly enough, the entity was open to actually talking to her. And she repeated back to Crowley the impressions that it gave, saying that it had followed him all along and that he wanted Crowley to follow his cult. To which Perturabo responded, <laughs> telling her to snatch his wand. And when she did, the entity started to vanish as if struggling through a labyrinth of light. He told her to tell Iwas that when he leaves, he can't return. But the entity ceased dissipating and instead gave a long cryptic set of messages, telling him to return to Egypt and to bring the Crimson Woman with him. It told him that he has to go back there with all the same surroundings and that it will give him all the signs that he needed to accomplish what it wanted from him. Iowas promised him power, power that of God, and then to break off relations with Sora Fidelis, and that if he doesn't do it, then he should follow other gods. Which is pretty bizarre, and um, when it was all over, they purified the area and closed everything down. However, Crowley did not break off relations with her. He ignored Iwas's commands yet again, and the two would actually remain in touch for basically the rest of their lives. I mean, this is Crowley we're talking about. No one tells Crowley what to do or dictates his actions or decisions or anything other than him. If it's anything that the old bard had in abundance, it's definitely testicular fortitude. But after the invocation of Iwas was over, he said bye to his old friend from the Golden Dawn and left China. But while docked in Japan, he'd have a pretty trippy and dark vision. Let's let Anubis tell you what he saw. So be it. Chronicler. Crater Perturabo walked into a dream, and in the room lay a naked man nailed to a cruciform table. Sages, venerable and wise, busily devoured the flesh of the man and drank his blood as if suffering from a great thirst. An etheric voice whispered to him that these were a group of adepts that he himself would one day join. The vision continued, and Freighter Perturabo drifted into an ivory hall. The only thing within the grand hall was a lone square altar. The voice once again spoke to him. It asked if he would sacrifice upon the altar. Perturabo replied that he would sacrifice everything but his will. Suddenly, he found himself before colossal figures of the ancient Egyptian gods. They were vast, enormous, making him seem like an insect. The voice asked him if knowledge of the gods would suffice. To which he replied, No. The voice told him he was critical and rationalistic. Perturabo apologized and kneeled before the altar, putting his hands upon it. Then a luminous figure clothed in brilliant all-white appeared before the altar. It put its hands over his and told him it received him into the order of the Silver Star. Perturabo then fell through space back to Earth in a ball of flame and awoke back into his mortal consciousness.
My name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. We're back. Crowley took this vision as indication that he'd been inducted into the Third Order of the Golden Dawn. But it was a pretty cryptic vision and, I don't know, kind of had a subtext of malevolence to it slightly. Also, many who subscribe to Golden Dawn traditions would laugh at this notion. But he did take it that way and considered himself, I guess, among the ranks of the secret chiefs. And Alistair, his intuition told him that if he didn't move forward with all this Iwa stuff, then he'd lose everything. What he didn't know was he'd have to lose everything anyway. So it kinda didn't really matter what he did, as long as he pursued his esoteric path, he'd lose everything regardless. However, it was about time that Alistair got back to England, so his ship left Japan, and he stopped off in a in America, and he checked out the Niagara Falls, which he thought was beautiful, before eventually making his way back to Britain and arriving in Liverpool. He made his way to London, where he picked up his mail and immediately fell apart after reading a telegram, because he actually was about to suffer a horrible tragedy. His daughter Lilith had died. In fact, they didn't even make it back to England before she died. On the way back from China, she got typhoid fever somehow. This utterly devastated Crowley and he wandered the streets of London for some time in just an oblivious haze. And when he was finally reunited with Rose, the two of them of course like embraced and cried together and mourned together and it was a pretty dark time. And after spending a little bit of time back with his wife, he was surprised that Rose had become a pretty severe alcoholic. To which at the time he kind of put his anger on, not at Rose, but at the alcohol. And that it wasn't Rose's fault that she was an alcoholic, but her genetics. Though she probably shouldn't be drinking while she's pregnant. This isn't that long ago. How could they not know that that's bad for pregnancy? I don't know. Anyway, stuff was pretty messed up for a while, and you can use your imagination. Rose had been a drinker before, though not nearly on such a obviously dysfunctional level. And shortly after this went down, Crowley suffered a series of bizarre illnesses up to a year, and didn't really get his life back on track or in order until visited by another exempt adept of the Golden Dawn named George Cecil Jones. Just like an angel, he zoomed into Crowley's life to put him back together. 
The adept then utilized rituals on Crowley originally, requiring a whole group of adepts to perform. Well, I mean a modified version, of course, because there was only two of them. But despite the change that Cecil made, it profoundly affected Crowley and inspired him greatly. He concluded that the order, the old order of the Golden Dawn, was flawed by having so many people in it, and groups of adepts were not really required. After all, the rituals that he and Jones performed, originally thought of to need a bunch of people to do, they did and had the same results, if not better. This greatly inspired him to pursue the occult in an independent manner, with it being just as potent as the Lodge of the Golden Dawn Adepts. And just like that, Perturabo was back in action. He and Cecil Jones talked about founding a new order, one beyond the limitations of the now defunct original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Though, remember too, I've already said that there were splinter groups still alive of the Golden Dawn, with one still being alive till this day. However, it's pretty easy to see that Crowley kind of had a, a chip on his shoulder about the whole thing, and kind of went out of his way to mess with the original members, at least the ones who stood against him, or the ones that he'd fallen out of favor with, or they'd fallen out of favor with him, etc., and I'm pretty sure that Mathers is still alive at this time. Yeah. And he would copy a lot of Mathers' work and put it out as, as like his own. Which is kind of messed up. And the only credit that he would ever give Mathers is in one which is just referencing him as a dead hand. So despite all of Crowley's knowledge, he probably wasn't seeing things as clearly as he should have been. In any case, he was moving on with this idea of a new order. And John Frederick Charles Fuller, the son of a hardcore Christian Anglican cleric who was seduced by Crowley into the mysteries, also joined their cause. They'd all pretty much become convinced that one of the main reasons why the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn fell apart was because of all the group work and people getting ahead in the grades for social status and not necessarily through their merit of uh, spiritual growth or actually learning the grades. People who were pretty much inferior that were rising through the ranks, uh, these people who failed to depolarize themselves and all the egos clashing was the cause of the split. There was just basically too many cooks in the kitchen all thinking that they should be the head chef with pretty much half of the cooks being inferior cooks. Not to mention all the different politics that slowly would be absorbed into it that also caused clashes. So all in all, they kind of saw the bigger orders not really working in the future. There could be big orders, but they had to be detached from one another and more focused on smaller close units of people, like smaller groups of people should be the focus. In the old Golden Dawn, many were in ranks far higher than they should have actually been in. The solution that they would come to would be more a focus on individual work, and a more prevalent teacher-student one-on-one way of doing things. Group work was thought to have been detrimental and to be removed from the curriculum entirely. They would still organize and meet for various reasons, but the focus would be on individual work with many members not to really even know each other or even engage with one another. It was concluded that when mystery schools that get together in groups too often with too many points of view and egos opposed to one another, when they get together too often, this kind of will always lead to conflict. And the smaller the order, the better. They altered original rituals where they saw fit, and Crowley at last accomplished his long and often sidelined goal of knowledge and communication with the Holy Guardian Angel, which is another reason why groups were kind of still important, because in order to do this, you had to cross something, um, you had to cross something called the Abyss, which is esoteric, and I'm not going to try and explain it to you because it would be ridiculous to try and explain to you right now but uh 
the reason why groups were still needed was because it goes against the very fabric of human nature to cross the abyss. And even Mathers himself never crossed it. The only way I can really try and explain it to make sense is that, let's just say it's super enlightenment. To which Crowley claimed to have finally accomplished. However, there are some who speculate differently on this matter, especially from his later opinions on his holy guardian angel. But for now, he was pretty convinced that he did. There's so many different opinions and points of view on this subject of the abyss. I mean, I can't really even begin to bring them all or present them all to you right now. And anybody out there who like knows this stuff and subscribes to some of these different points of view, you'll understand that I really just can't explain it right now. It would take way too long. And then there's peop these people over here saying, oh, that's BS. And these people over here saying, oh, that's BS. And these people over here saying, oh, this is the only way. And those people over there saying, oh, no, this is the only way. And it's like, oh my gosh. So anyway, we'll just move on. And during all this time, Alistair had taken a mistress, kind of disgusted with Rose's alcoholism. His second child, Lola, was born sickly and weak, which kind of... Which is kind of messed up to think about because considering she was like being an alcoholic through most of the pregnancy. How did they not know that back then? It's like a hundred years ago. But obviously the baby was born pretty messed up. And this is where, again, you can see how Crowley could be kind of evil at times. Because from here on out, his relationship with Rose just gets worse and worse. And he blames Rose not only for Lilith's death, but... I mean, come on, dude. You ditched your family in China to travel across the world on their own, alone. But he, he never even mentions this in his diaries or any contemporary dialogues or anything. He just blames it all on exterior factors outside of himself. Which just doesn't make sense to me. Also, you know, that's just kind of a dick move. And I think I'm just interjecting too much of my opinions in this episode. But honestly, like, I think this kind of just all led towards Rose's downward spiral into madness. Yet still, in Alistair's writing, he states that Rose failed him as a magical partner and even says that the gods killed Lilith. So I don't know, listener. But I think Crowley maybe wasn't as self-aware or as enlightened as he thought he was. Just saying, merely thinking about how he acts towards Rose kind of hurts my heart. And I would never ever even think about doing something like that or just acting that way. But enough about my blah, blah, blah. As we've already gone over, Crowley's stuff is filled with darkness and light and consistent contradictions. It's just part of the Aleister Crowley legacy. And despite all of this dark stuff concerning him, the dude was still a genius and still changed the world for the better, I think. He had a huge part to play in unplugging a lot of people from the Matrix to an extent, for the lack of a better saying at the moment. Though his interest in the occult was much darker than many who were once members of the original Golden Dawn would ever consider part of their own magical path. He was willing to go places where others were not for the sake of progress and knowledge, which is one of the best things about him, whereas a lot of these occult people, they just get like stuck in the mud. Whereas Crowley, he let that mud settle and walked on top of it. So despite like all the downsides and bad stuff, he still was a mover and a shaker for the better. And I'm not being a Crowley apologist either. Just saying you can't have the bad without the good. But still in saying that too, a lot of these, a lot of his his willingness to embrace darkness would lead to some pretty interesting practices that some may consider insane. Or I guess a lot of people may consider insane. Remember, I'm presenting this information in an attempt to be from their perspective, not from an outsider's perspective. So, you know. Gotta also remember that many of these uh, occult perspectives from because, I mean, there's tons of occult perspectives. The occult is not just one overarching thing, but just a plethora of tons of different 
trains of thought and organizations and you name it. But they, a lot of them didn't, don't see morality in the same way that your common person would look at morality. But here is where a lot of outside people looking in or even people from Esoterica will look at Crowley and think maybe he's got some screws loose. Because around this time, Alistair contacted his buddy Jones, Cecil Jones, and he requested to take a vow of silence. And Jones, knowing some things I don't really understand concerning the occult and what was going on secretly at the time, told him that he shouldn't take a vow of silence. Instead, he should vow just to not answer any questions for a week. And every time he messed up, to cut his forearm with a razor blade. Yeah. And that kind of seems like a pretty weird response to someone just requesting to take a vow of silence. To Crowley though, Jones was considered the only one he could ask because he was the only person that he saw as a high-ranking member of the Golden Dawn, or anyone that could remotely be his equal or above to even consider requesting. So instead of thinking hurting himself to be kind of weird, like a weird thing to suggest, he accepted the adept's advice and took up the challenge. And this is the origin of one of the things or practices that would lead many to question Alistair Crowley. And I'll tell you why. Over the next week, Crowley failed to keep his oath a total of 72 times, and his arm was a swollen cluster of raw meat and scabs. He literally cut his wrist every single time he accidentally answered a question. And somehow Crowley convinced himself that this self-mutilation led to a greater awareness and a higher consciousness. He claimed to take full measure to everything around him and to analyze every word he spoke before he said it in a way that he'd never done before. Something that he should have already been an expert at if he had been a steady meditator and somebody who's mindful that just happens naturally. It's just simple mindfulness and I don't really understand how he could he could not have already like been good at it or why he'd think what he thought but who knows. I must be missing something somewhere. But he mostly claimed that it strengthened the will, which is key in these esoteric practices. And despite the obvious many reasons not to, he actually decided to incorporate this self-mutilation into his lessons and even his magical canon and instructions in uh, Liber Jigorum, I think it's called which actually probably cost him countless possible initiates or people interested in his stuff, people looking into his workings curiously, only to be instantly driven away. It also had the negative effect of anyone who witnessed it, or anyone who had daily interaction with him, who was seeing him practicing this, they were thinking that he was nuts. This was not acceptable in English society. I mean, it's extremely important to unplug and not give a fuck what the herd thinks, but there's a line. However, I gotta keep in mind that Crowley and quote-unquote lines don't mix, or even holding back in general, for that matter. He's a all-or-nothing kind of guy. And this practice actually even alienated Rose even more from him as well as anyone close to her, especially his family, anyone who visited his house, who saw this stuff from her side of things, was kind of like, what is going on, dude? You know, just saying um, self-mutilation goes against the, the Tao, goes against Buddhism, goes against basically every spiritual teaching I've ever come across. So no, this is not a good thing. I don't care if it strengthens the will or whatever. There's like a bajillion other non-harmful ways to do that. So this is where he starts to kind of go from, well, he was always larger than life, but this is where he starts to get kind of darker in an obvious manner. And yeah, he would incorporate this into his future teachings. So <laughs> I don't even know what, where to go with that one, but um, let's just move on. So after some shenanigans with a guru from India, 
Crowley would write two more occult books he claimed was dictated to him by his holy guardian angel. Like I already said, he at this time considered the entity Iwas to be his holy guardian angel, but he also took this back later in life and was very suspicious of the entity like he had been earlier in his life. For now, he considered the two to be interchangeable in no doubt thanks to his massive ego. Though, um, I'm not... I think I feel like I'm talking shit about Crowley. I'm not talking shit about Crowley. Just being candid. Despite all his saying how enlightened he was, um, he lorded over everyone and has all the telltale signs of narcissism and just, yeah, massive ego. It's just it's what it is. The sky's blue, water's wet. It's just part of what makes Crowley Crowley. I mean, he says he dissolved his ego by going across the abyss and that he was detached from everything he held dear, but this really just isn't the case from his actions and everything and what other people say about him. And I don't really think that he knew himself nearly as much as he thought he did, but I could be wrong. Definitely could be wrong. In any case, he was moving forward and establishing his new occult order and all they lacked was one more reputable person of the right stature to complete the third adept to found the order. Always gotta do things in three with these organizations. Three is a really important number to Esoterica. No other group in the occult community across the world would take their new order seriously if they didn't, so it's just one of the things you gotta do. It's like getting a license almost. And this is where Fuller comes in, the guy I mentioned earlier. They all got together and the triad was finally complete. And so the AA was formed, which is its most common name when being referenced or talked about, but it's actually called the Argentium Astrum or the Silver Star. Welcome to the Chamber of Mysteries. I am Anubis, the Egyptian god of death and guide through the underworld. Recently, the goddess Ma'at pointed out to me that the scales of justice have not been in balance. This is not good and can bring chaos to the multiverse. But you, dear mortal, may help in averting this cosmic disaster by supporting Cryptic Chronicles. In doing so, you will gain ad-free episodes of the podcast, as well as bonus content only for patrons. In spreading free thinking and higher knowledge, the forces of darkness are kept at bay. Simply subscribe to the Chronicler's Vault at CrypticChronicles.com. And by pledging a single dollar a month, you can help keep Apophis in the void and Ra's sky chariot soaring proudly through the universe. Also, subscribe to the Cryptic Chronicles YouTube channel. Share. Talk. Anubis, don't forget to tell them about iTunes and spreading the show. Oh, right. Thank you, Ma'at. Please, mortal, help broaden the scope of listeners for the podcast by leaving a good review on iTunes and share every episode or any Cryptic Chronicles content as much as you can. In doing so, we can increase the audience and fans for the show, spreading it across all the consciousness of humanity. Help fight the darkness by supporting Cryptic Chronicles and assist the Goddess of the Scales and I, Anubis, God of Death, in bringing balance to the planes of existence. The astral currents must be calmed and the opposites must be reconciled. As above, so below. Farewell, mortal.
Hi there. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. February 1908, Rose had spent some time in what we would call in modern times rehab for her alcoholism. Her and Alistair would go on easy, light hikes for clean air and to clear her mind. They'd then move into a new house in Warwick, England, and for the first time, Rose's name was used on the lease. This is because Crowley actually began to see his once massive fortune visually begin to shrink before his eyes. And he didn't really want to pick up the responsibility of holding the lease if he, if his funds started to <laughs> deplete beyond being able to pay for anything, you know what I mean? Which was pretty unsettling to Alistair. He'd always known nothing but having whatever he wanted and uh, doing whatever he wanted and whenever he wanted to. And with his fortune shrinking, so did his coveted status. At least to the superficial social structure of, uh, of England. Promoting his new occult order, the AA, had been expensive, and though his writing was pumping out faster than ever, it wasn't picking up to the point where there was any real profit, and Crowley's marital issues always seemed to be pretty consistent, because it wasn't really, it wasn't really, um, Rosa's sobriety was not meant to last, because not very long after they moved into their new house, like just a handful of days, she began getting wasted on a regular basis, worse than she even did before her time in rehab. And eventually it got so heated that Crowley went to stay with some of his friends in France. That is, until called back by Rose's dad, claiming that she wasn't always wasted now, and that the family had pressured her into lightening up on the drinking. He returned to London and picked up where he left off, basically, but the future looked bleak for their relationship. Because, as I'm pretty sure you already saw coming, it wasn't too long before she'd relapse again and she was sneaking drinks when no one was looking all the time. Whenever he'd have friends over, she was overtly rude to them for seemingly no reason other than to just bother Alistair. She was pretty much always constantly caustic and quarrelsome, constantly looking out for things to get upset about. Among the usual issues that may pop into your head concerning alcoholics. So, in the end, he told Rose that he was leaving, and this time he was not coming back until she was cured. And he didn't think that she could be cured, so he pretty much thought he was never coming back. And Crowley already screwed around a lot, but now he had opened doors to new lovers, and he didn't hesitate at all. He'd go on to have many love affairs, some with prestigious and even famous women, as well as lesser-known ones. And if there was anything going on with Crowley's bisexuality and any male lovers, I couldn't find anything. 
But let's just say after leaving Rose, he was all about having some good times, and I guarantee you he was just as much into boobies as he was wieners. Though Crowley's attention was always half on the occult, no matter what he was up to. He was always tinkering and practicing his art. In experiments with an esoteric student of his named Victor Newberg, the two found some interesting things concerning necromancy, mediumship, and the nature of spiritual entities. Victor turned out to have a huge natural talent at it. Raw talent. But he lacked discipline and wasn't really able to focus his abilities in any efficient manner. But with the help of good old Perturabo, they'd managed to summon spiritual entities to take on visual form for up to an hour, only dissipating once the magicians had grown exhausted by the ordeal. Alistair had never been the best at this and had to rely on others for the most part, so coming across Victor was a huge boon to his research. He, of course, had met many people who could do this sort of thing, but he never met someone who could so easily reach into the underworld as Victor. He's said to have had an uncanny ability to cause any evoked spirit to become visual to those spiritually awakened as well as those who still slept which is highly unusual. The third eye, we call it these days, or the pineal gland too, I guess, is really dormant in most people, so making it able for others who have dormant abilities to see them is almost unheard of, and usually relegated to extremely bad hauntings and stuff like that, or demonic activity. So Crowley was very pumped to be able to work with him on the more supernatural aspects of the occult, and uh, it's pretty much all but confirmed that they were also lovers. Gotta remember that being gay or even bi or anything like that was straight up illegal in these times. And if you did anything like that and get caught, your entire life would basically be ruined and over. All the doors would shut to you. Society would completely alienate you. So it's no wonder if they were lovers that they were keeping their cards close to their chest. I'm not going to go into detail, but if you look enough at the stuff that Crowley wrote and put two and two together, yeah. The two would go on a long trek across the mountainous train of Spain, and to his credit, when they got back to England, Crowley checked in on Rose, only to find that she was worse than ever. So he grabbed his daughter Lola to stay in France and keep her away from her mother's toxic fall into depravity. He hoped that the loss of her daughter might whip her into shape and get her to quit drinking. But he wasn't crossing any fingers. He knew at least that his daughter would be safe in France, though. And her drinking got so bad that later, doctors got to the point that they told Rose she needed to be institutionalized for two years under constant monetization. It would be the only way for her to quit drinking because she refused and seemed incapable of doing it on her own. Though... It was pretty obvious that she was slowly drinking herself to death. However, despite the doctors very vehemently telling her this, she refused. To which finally, when Crowley found out, he requested a divorce. He said he still loved her and always would, but he wouldn't watch her destroy herself and those around her. To make her look better, though, and avoid scandal... He allowed Rose's estate to make sure the divorce requested was based on his own infidelity, making him look like the one who was being divorced, not him divorcing her. Crowley didn't care what others thought anyway, so it was no damage to him, and may repair some dignity to his once-beloved crimson woman. He even manufactured all the evidence to use against him in court, though... Aldi, despite this, Alistair would go back to the home and even live there with Rose, seeing her on a daily basis for some time. So, I think there's like some missing pieces to this puzzle concerning all of this, but they actually might have gotten along better after the divorce. This was a good thing too, because writers really need stability to write well, and his work was actually picking up steam a bit, kind of beginning to find out what he was doing wrong or why his work wasn't as popular as he thought it should be. He discovered that if he just reworded a few things in his poems and writings, like 
adding the Virgin Mary or other easily recognizable Christian sayings, then he got more attention. So he began to alter some words here and there, and his writing career actually picked up quite a bit by a drastic measure, which, as you, we've already talked about Crowley, I'm sure that this probably really annoyed him, since he was a lifelong enemy of mainstream religion and looked to blaspheme it wherever he could, but he enjoyed the spike in the numbers of eyes directed his way. He enjoyed all the attention and the praise and whatnot. And, uh, Crowley would even hide secret messages in the work that were kind of hilarious, though luckily overlooked by the masses because they're often very crude, but witty and poignant. And then 1909 comes around, and this year of Alistair's life was going to prove very exciting. His esoteric mystery school, the AA, was really coming into its own throughout the start of the year, and he even revealed his biannual journal, the famous Equinox. And though his students were expected to buy their own books from the cascading curriculum Curly had to offer, and the other adepts had to offer as well, the costs were always at or below the street price. And the cost to be in the AA as well was extremely reasonable. Alistair Crowley had firmly chosen not to make money or any profit from the AA whatsoever, which actually says a lot. There are so many cons out there in the modern times with people naive and easy to manipulate with only the pockets of the higher-ups getting bigger. So, the way it was looked at by many Golden Dawn members at least, it was considered all of humanity's birthright to obtain this esoteric knowledge and gain insight into spiritual evolution and true wisdom. Literally everybody was entitled to it if they had the self-discipline and the will to do so. And it kind of looks like Alistair subscribed to that thought process as well, though that doesn't mean they would accept just anyone. If you believe in reincarnation like many of these circles do, then though someone is not ready in this lifetime, they may be in the next, or the next, or the one after that, etc. Eventually, no matter how many lifetimes somebody lives, eventually they do the great work, and the world would be open for people to reincarnate in until the very last soul has performed it. It was basically just like in, in the Buddhist way of looking at things, or pretty much all of the, the real spiritual heavy hitters all look at it the same way. However, my point is that this purposely not making any profit when he easily could have, even though, you know, his fortune was dwindling and whatnot, he didn't have much cash flow, but this not focusing on profit whatsoever actually says a lot about Aleister Crowley. After all, words are wind, right? Speaking through actions is the only true communication. And concerning this actually says a lot. In any case, there was, a, there was a surprising number of students, and things looked like they were up to a good start concerning the AA. And at one point, Kenneth Martin Ward, one of the first students and a man of renown, visited Crowley where Sking got brought up. He hadn't ever skied before, and Crowley was a veteran at Sking. Well, first it was about the Equinox's next issues and how Crowley wanted to explain the Enochian tablets and John Dee's 1600s angel magic. And if you don't know who John Dee was, John Dee is basically the real life hand of the queen to Queen Elizabeth in England, supposedly assisting in the country's rise to become a global superpower. The queen is objectively written to have leaned heavily on Dee, who had the biggest library of the known world at the time, and was well versed as both a practitioner and some would say master of occult arts. Dee is said to have contacted extra-dimensional beings through his Enochian system of magic. Explaining all this to Ward and skiing being brought up, Alistair said that he could actually have his extra pair of skis. And when he went to go look for the Enochian tablets and his skis in the attic, he came across the original manuscript for the Book of the Law, to which caused him to stop rummaging and... He basically just stared at it for a while in a haze, pretty much mesmerized by it. 
He had assumed that the original copy was lost a long time ago and an eerie feeling sank over him as he looked at the pages and contemplated the synchronicity of the situation. He'd avoided it for so long, but now he was beginning to think of it much more seriously. for this episode on Alistair Crowley. It's interesting how we're more than three hours in on the Crowley series and he's only 30 and we haven't even really gotten to the, the juicy stuff. As always, his tale is going to be super weird, but oddly fascinating. Though I'm sure you can see how easy it is for people who don't like him to demonize him. I mean, they got, they got a lot of ammo to work with. Still. Despite all the haters, the old bard had a profound influence on the world, and I can't wait to get into all the high strangeness surrounding him to come. But until then, let's go back to the Nephilim and focus on some other things for a while, and get back to the old bard soon enough. Anyway, let's look at a couple comments real quick and see what you all have to say about the show. Stephanie Hale says, Fantastic! Thank you for doing the research for me, lol. And as always, thank you for the podcast. I'm quickly catching up. Hey, thanks, Stephanie. I'm glad that you enjoy it. And don't you worry, I got plenty more to come for you. Amy Larson says, I can't wait until I can catch up on your current episode. I started with the Nephilim and decided to start from the beginning. You're pretty great. Thanks for the show. Oh my gosh, Amy, don't listen to those old early episodes. They're horrible. It took me so long. I'm like completely self-taught in everything. And it was actually incredibly challenging to learn how to talk into a mic with no one around and just kind of like figure everything out. So listen to my more recent episodes. Those are just look at those as practice. <laughs> I mean, I did put my heart and soul into all of them every single one, but you can definitely see the quality increase over time. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, thank you for the good compliments, and yes, the Nephilim series will continue. Michael Worrell says, Awesome. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Thanks, Michael. You, as always, are one of the coolest people I know. And thank you, everyone, for the comments. Please give more feedback and criticism so I can make the show better and better. And before we take off, I want to, of course, thank my illustrious patrons. Leanna Watson, Stephanie Wilkie, Angie Allen, Ashley, Paul, Megan Crosswell, and Belinda Gonzalez. If you'd like to join the ranks of these biggest, greatest, most awesomest badasses who ever lived, simply go to crypticchronicles.com and click on the Chronicler's Vault. At just a buck a month, you get all kinds of good stuff and blah, 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 blah. As always, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and as an enlightened sage once said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. <laughs>